there are hundreds of millions of cars on the road. There are only two million semi-trucks, but they account for 5% of the entire US carbon footprint. Um, so that's a crazy big opportunity. If anyone's listening and thinking, should I get involved in climate tech? Should I not? You, you need to do it. It, it is the moment to do it. We're at the beginning of a massive wave of investment and excitement. We're about to decarbonize the whole planet. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. I am your host, Florian, and I am thrilled to welcome you to this brand new podcast where we meet with the founders building the technologies to get us to net zero. We live in the defining decade for climate. We have until 2030 to halve our emissions. In Scaling Climate Tech, we will understand how these incredible climate technologies work and if and how they can replace fossil solutions, not over the next century, but in the next 10 years. Today, we are having a discussion with Paul Gross, co-founder and co-CEO of Remora. Remora is a young startup doing carbon capture for trucks. Since the company was created in 2020, they have been ramping up extremely fast. Join Y Combinator, raised $5.5 million, and are now a 45-people strong company about to deploy their product at some of the largest American trucking companies. That is less than 24 months from ideation to product deployment. Really, really impressive. In this discussion with Paul, we talk about his early interest in climate from his childhood, how the Remora idea originated, and how he assembled a dream team to get this project up the ground, what carbon capture is, how it works, and why this is a critical technology to fight climate change, the role of hydrogen, electricity, and biofuels in trucking decarbonization, and finally, how to scale from a few pilot trucks to a million of trucks worldwide. Let's get started. Paul, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm, I'm so glad we found the time. Before we talk about the, you know, the product, uh, Remora, your company, could we go back a bit in time on, you know, you're, you're leading a climate tech startup right now. Um, where did you grow up? How did you get interested in climate if, if that started in the childhood or this is something that, that came out later? I grew up in San Francisco and I spent a lot of time when I was really young with my grandparents. So both my parents worked all the time um, and I really spent every day with my grandparents. Um, and you know, my grandfather was a civil rights lawyer. My grandmother is a Unitarian Universalist minister and they would take me for walks on the beach where every time we would see a piece of trash, we would have to pick it up. You know, we went camping in the Redwoods in Northern California. There was just a huge emphasis on treating the planet well in my family. It was something that was kind of taught from a very young age. Um, and, you know, I particularly got that from my grandparents. And then I went to a hippie middle school where, you know, we uh, sang songs every day at singing time and we watched An Inconvenient Truth in physics class. And, you know, I, I just, I think that was the second part of my education on why it's so important to think about climate change. And really, you know, you can't not think about it in San Francisco because every year we saw the wildfires all around the Bay Area and around California get worse and worse and worse. And now we're at a point where every year, a whole month, the sky is choked with smoke and ash rains down on the cars. I mean, just a couple of years ago, the sky was dark orange in the middle of the day because of ash from a wildfire. That's pretty hard to ignore. So I guess I just grew up feeling that climate change was going to be this massive change in all of our lives. And it was something that, um, you know, was going to happen in my lifetime. So it felt pretty mandatory to go try to do something about it. 100% with you here. And I think in the Bay Area, you also have this connection with nature. You, you see it everywhere, even this. And you also see the change of nature, which you, you don't see in every city. Sometimes, you know, you're a bit in a almost in the urban bubble. And I think it's opening you to the, the water, the parks, and you can, you can see the beauty, but also how it is changing throughout time. Absolutely. We, we would go hiking and biking all the time and you could see everything getting drier and drier. And, you know, just, you're so right. I think that's one of the amazing things about growing up in the Bay Area, but it's also one of the really terrifying things. 
were you also when we were at school you know we're talking here about 2000 ish this is really early to talk about climate change uh, or global warming what kind of introduction do you get from um you know i don't want to say academic perspective or uh through the school system to that i was really lucky to go to a school where we learned all about climate change i mean as i mentioned it was, it was very progressive um but we had a whole unit where we talked about actually how does climate change happen in the atmosphere and why is it that greenhouse gases trap heat how does that actually work um, and then we had a whole other unit where we had to calculate our carbon footprint and we looked at all of the carbon emissions in our lives and figured out like what was our footprint how could we reduce it we had constantly um, you know classes on sustainability our school is very into composting and, and recycling and we learned all about what to put in each bin we had a whole unit where we measured how much water came out of our faucet and tried to reduce water consumption so our, it was a school that was very focused on sustainability and you know i think that's the reason that i was able to learn about climate change maybe before it was as much in the kind of national consciousness yeah this, this sounds so forward thinking uh if all the schools could do this today that would be fantastic already <laughs> It totally would be. Yeah, incredible experience. And so you you came from the Bay, had this early early sensitivity to climate change and, and uh, how this is impacting nature. Um, and then you went to Yale and studied data science. What prompted you to move into statistics and, and data science from there? Is it like intellectual curiosity or is it, did you already had in mind application for, for climate at this stage? Yeah. I thought I wanted to go into politics, and specifically I wanted to work on political campaigns. So I tried a bunch of different ways to work on political campaigns, and what I ended up realizing is that campaigns are incredibly data-driven and rely on you know big randomized experiments to figure out how do we most effectively persuade people to go vote, um, and what's the best message to deliver, and that rigor really appealed to me. Um, so I decided to study statistics and data science in order to use that skill set um, in data on campaigns. And that's how I felt like I could make the biggest impact on climate. You know, I think politics is this huge, important lever in climate. We just saw incredibly um, the impact of politics with the Inflation Reduction Act. But at the time, I just really got frustrated by how slowly um, I felt politics was moving on climate and how little I could ha really have an impact as just as someone working on a campaign. Um, so I decided to change gears and start a company around, um, you know, some kind of carbon capture idea because I thought that would maybe be a faster route to having a, the impact I wanted to have specifically in climate. Okay. And, and for those of you that are not in the U.S., the Inflection Reduction Act is a, is a massive piece of legislation which has almost 400 billion dedicated climates and and we'll probably talk about it later because there are implications for carbon capture as well um okay so you had a very political angle to to statistics and data science which is interesting and this is in the early days right where this is being applied to politics um i think obama was starting to use this in this campaign uh, but this was not mainstream yet right yeah, I would say it became more mainstream with Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, which was extremely data-driven. Um, that also raised some questions about how accurate polling is in particular, but um, it was, it was, it's definitely a field that's still emerging, uh, but a really exciting field, and I think really important work. There's been a lot of cool work done to figure out the best ways to engage with voters, um, and I'm still very interested in it. Um, I just ended up feeling like it wasn't exactly the right fit for me and the way that I wanted to have an impact. And so how did you move from that to where you are today? Um, you know, throughout Yale, you probably did a lot of classes. How did you end up working on, on semi trucks? So during my senior year at Yale, I started thinking maybe I want to start a company instead of you know, working in politics. And that was because I got really obsessed with this idea of how do we make carbon capture scalable? It felt like this 
technology that had been around for a hundred years, used in spaceships and submarines to clean the air. It was you know, used in theory on power plants, but it just hadn't scaled up and it felt like this essential thing that we, another tool that we needed to address the climate crisis, in addition to all the incredible renewables that are being developed. So I started really trying to think about how do we make this scalable? And I think the key insight was we need to do modular, repeatable carbon capture. So rather than building these massive construction projects retrofitted onto huge power plants that are kind of these one-offs, they take years, they have budget overruns, you know, you can't repeat it. What if we made carbon capture this small modular device just like we did with wind and solar, where then you can get down a manufacturing cost curve. You can repeat it many, many times. It gets cheaper and cheaper every time you do it. Um, and that was how I started thinking about mobile carbon capture. Um, and specifically, you know, I think I, I started thinking about segments where it's really hard to decarbonize vehicles, and you know, semi trucks is one of the hardest. Um, and I started doing a lot of research on well, why isn't mobile carbon capture happening? Like how is this not already something that's in the world? And I came across my co-founder Christina's work during her PhD at the University of Michigan, where she had been funded by the EPA to investigate for years whether mobile carbon capture would be possible and really pioneered this whole field. No one in academia thought it would be possible. Everett said, no way. And she went and actually proved it with many, many bench tests and, and then vehicle tests um, that it was possible. So I, I reached out to her and that was really the beginning of this whole journey with, with starting Remora. So let's unpack this because for, for me, carbon capture is based on reading Scrooge. Uh, th that's how much I, I know about carbon capture. There, there was this episode where they put little bubbles, I think it was like plastic bubbles behind the, the cars. And then those bubbles would capture the emissions and, and go, you know, in the sky and I don't remember the mechanism, but there's some form of mechanism to capture those bubbles and then they, they put it somewhere else. Um, and, and that was carbon capture, um, according to Scrooge. So can you help us maybe in a more scientific way understand how, how that works? The carbon capture, you can think about it like a big filter. You put it on a tailpipe, you get the carbon dioxide coming out, along with a bunch of other harmless gases like oxygen and nitrogen and water. and what you do is you filter out the carbon dioxide using some kind of chemical process. Um, and I'm happy to talk about how we do it at Remora. Um, but then you get this kind of pure carbon dioxide. And what you do after that is you can either utilize it. So for instance, inject it into concrete to make the concrete stronger, permanently sequester it, or you could turn it into diesel or, or another jet fuel, um, or you can pump it into a EPA certified well um, where it would be sequestered permanently. Um, and, and the goal is just to take that stream of carbon dioxide that would have ended up in the atmosphere and sequester it permanently, um, either via utilization or via underground sequestration. Okay, let's take five minutes to step back a bit and unpack what Paul just talked about. I've actually done a bit of research since reading Scrooge to better understand carbon capture. So let's break down why we need carbon capture in the first place. And then let's look at the three main ways to capture carbon, zooming in one specific type of carbon capture through man-made machines, of which Remora is an example. So why do we need carbon capture? Can't we just stop producing carbon emissions in the first place? In theory, yes, we absolutely need to stop producing emissions and fully decarbonize the economy as fast as possible. And this is the end goal we should all be aiming for. However, there are two major barriers to achieving this rapid decarbonization. One is the lack of viable alternatives. This is very sector specific as some low carbon technologies are already mature and are competing on a cost perspective with fossil technologies. Think of solar or wind power generation, which is already more competitive than most coal or gas power generation in most geographies. However, for some sectors, the technology is either not ready yet, so still in research or emerging, or the technology is ready, but is not cost competitive with the legacy fossil technology. You can think of airplanes, you can think of steel production or trucking for Remora that lack the cost competitive technology able to be deployed today. The second reason is the asset lifetime. Even when technology exists and it is cost competitive, 
it will take a long time to replace all of the installed base with the newer low carbon technologies. For large investments like manufacturing plants or power plants, they tend to have an even longer lifetime of 30 years or 40 years. So we need to find a solution to decarbonize new assets that are being built now, definitely, but we also need to find a solution to decarbonize existing assets so that they stop producing those emissions in the coming decades. All the leading climate agencies show that we actually need carbon capture to achieve the Paris Agreement. For instance, the International Energy Agency states that about five gigaton of emissions a year should be captured by 2040. That is an increase of 300 times to today's capacity. So how do we capture carbon? There are three ways of going about that. One is through nature-based solutions. These are natural processes that already occur today, such as the growth of a tree. We can develop projects that restore deforested area so that we increase the total carbon capture from this naturally occurring phenomenon. The second method still relies on the natural process, but this is a bit more artificially made, and these are called enhanced natural processes. For instance, the carbon mineralization process naturally occurs today by which a carbon dioxide molecule will react with some rock to create a carbonate. Therefore, the carbon dioxide will be captured uh, inside the rock. We can replicate this process by exposing carbon dioxide to certain types of crushed rocks like basalt to drive such carbon mineralization process and capture the carbon. So this is enhanced natural processes. And finally, and, and this is what we're going to talk about today, they are engineered solutions. So in this case, it's a man-made machine that will capture the carbon. We also call these processes carbon capture utilization storage or CCUS. In reality, it's carbon capture and utilization or storage. So carbon capture, the carbon can either be captured straight from the air, and then we talk about direct air capture. It's a really exciting technology. Honestly, it deserves its episode on its own. It's very exciting. A lot of things happening in this field. Alternatively, carbon can also be captured from an existing carbon source, typically a gas or a coal power plant or an industrial facility such as an iron, steel, cement, or petrochemical plant. These plants produce a large flue stream that is highly concentrating carbon emission that can be captured. The CO2 can then be stored, in which case it is stored underground in specific geological formations, typically saline aquifers or depleted oil and gas fields. This is a very mature technology. It's been done for years by oil and gas companies that typically inject the CO2 in their end-of-life oil fields to squeeze out the last drop of oils in these fields and then the CO2 is actually stuck in there. CO2 can also be used instead of stored. So this might be surprising because we always talk of CO2 as a waste and something we need to get rid of, which we absolutely need to, but it is also an input to a lot of processes. So it can be used directly for carbonated beverages, for instance, or it can even be injected in cement to increase its resistance or it can also be used as a feedstock to a chemical reaction, such as ammonia production, for instance. Okay, and what you guys do at Remora is the capture piece. The storage and utilization is, is you know, this can be someone else that will either store it in a, in a well that's certified or use it for some purpose, as you mentioned. Exactly right. We capture the carbon dioxide and we're really excited to work with a very wide range of utilizers and sequesters. We're not going to do just one thing. We're going to do many, many different things with the carbon dioxide. Okay. So if we go back to Yale, you're in 2020, you, you read that paper from your co-founder, you're, you're like, okay, this is really interesting. This is what I was looking for. What do you do next? Her email address was on the front page, so I just emailed her and said, I have a bunch of questions for you about your research. And I genuinely didn't think that you know the world expert on mobile carbon capture would be at all interested in actually starting a company with me. So I was just reaching out to ask questions. But she and I really hit it off. I really liked her. She's super smart, obviously. And um, you know we just kept talking. I ended up writing a big business plan to make the case that this is a startup that should exist. 
and I sent it to her for her comments. Um, and at that point, she, you know, I think started to think, well, maybe she might be interested in joining as a co-founder. She was working at the EPA at the time, designing advanced testing programs for electric vehicles. Um, and you know, we just kept talking, and eventually she said, you know what, I'm in. Um, and that's how she and I initially teamed up. Uh, but it, it was truly an amazing moment because you know I talked to her PhD advisor as well, and he was he said to me, you know, no one on the planet knows more than her about mobile carbon capture. So to have the world expert jump on board was was really exciting. And then she and I said, well, what else do we need on the founding team? And what was clear is we needed an incredible mechanical engineer, someone with a lot of experience with trucks, someone that could help really build the technology um, and had a lot of experience prototyping new technologies. So we interviewed maybe 50 engineers and it was a very extensive search. And we found my co-founder, Eric, who was a diesel truck mechanic for a decade. And then he went and got his bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering. And he ended up building electric and hydrogen semi-trucks and buses for some of the world's largest uh, automotive manufacturers. Um, so it's kind of the perfect person. He also really shared our values and our mission. So we teamed up with him and started the company. Sounds like the dream team. And, and from the email you sent to your co-founder, you know, how, how did you, did you just exchange by email and, and start testing each other, interest in you know, making a company, pushing the idea? How, how did that progress forward? Yeah, um, well, we had you know some phone calls, and um, as I mentioned, I wrote this business plan, and I think that helped her see that I was very serious about this. Um, we also, you know, as we really started to get to know each other and consider working together, this was during the pandemic, so we actually couldn't meet in person. So we called a bunch of references on each other, like um, we talked to each other's friends and colleagues just to try to get to know each other. And um, we even, you know, read some of each other's work. Like I had obviously read her dissertation, but um, I shared some of my work with her. Um, and I think just that that process of getting to know each other was really important. And so when you build that business plan, like what does it look like? You know, you, you don't have any prior business experience, I imagine. Um, you're at this point not a specialist of carbon capture. Um, so is it that you know literally a, a few lines on Excel, or how do you think and, and frame that? It was so it's a you know multi-page document, basically saying here's how I think we can structure the business model, and you know it was suggesting that we would capture the carbon dioxide from a truck, and then we'd sell the captured carbon dioxide. And I made the case for there are all these different use cases for carbon dioxide. It's actually a massive market, and there are all these new utilization cases coming online. So we'd sell the captured carbon dioxide, and then we'd share the revenue back with the owner of the fleet. So the device would actually pay for itself in just a couple years with the revenue from the carbon dioxide, and we'd help the fleet meet their climate commitments. And then the other big part of the business plan, aside from you know recapping some of the technology from Christina's PhD, is I was making the case that we're seeing this once in a lifetime change in the world, which is that people are waking up to the climate crisis. And it's really, that's the thing that makes me the most optimistic. If you look at the graph of the companies that are making climate commitments every year, it is growing exponentially. Just It started just in 2019 or even 2020. It's very recent, but it is just skyrocketing. And I think that's a leading indicator of you know, people's minds changing and people seeing all the terrible floods and wildfires and realizing this is not just some abstract thing. This is actually happening right now and it's gonna keep getting worse and worse and worse unless we do something. I think it's amazing to see this big bill passed in the US, another indication of you know, popular sentiment. But I think the world is changing in a really dramatic way. And in my mind, that created this huge opportunity for us to build a technology that could help these companies meet these new climate commitments. Um, I also made the case that the funding environment is changing and there's a lot more capital being put into climate after kind of like a decade of, of disinterest after the first clean tech boom. Um, so that was the scope of the business plan, just kind of trying to make the case that this is the right moment for you know a decarbonization company. I, I share your optimism here, um, especially on the corporate side. I think, you know, if, if you look at all those commitments you mentioned, whether you're talking of net zero or SBTI, but they're 
there's a really strong corporate engagement to actually reach you know 2030 decarbonization target and, and 2050 much more ambitious targets um so this, this is terrific to see um okay so you decide to work together you're still in yale senior year you know this is going to be a company that you're going to make after yale um what does the product look like at this stage you have a technological concept and maybe a prototype from your co-founder from epa exactly at this point, I had already graduated, and we, we recruited Eric around September of 2020. Um, so the team got together, but Christina and Eric were both still working in their jobs. And the agreement we'd make is, let's apply to Y Combinator, and if we get in, they're going to quit their jobs, and we're going to get started. So we applied to Y Combinator, the startup accelerator, and um, we got in. And so they quit their jobs, and that was really when we started working in earnest on Remora. So we incorporated in December of 2020. So the company's been around for about a year and a half. And that was the true start. But we already did have the work that Christina did during her PhD, you know, Eric's incredible background building new climate technology for trucks. Um, so I think that was what convinced YC that we would be a good fit. And, and for context, YC is arguably the most famous and prestigious incubator out there. Um, it, it's also very famous for software companies, even though there, there are some hardware companies. Um, can you tell us a bit about this experience? There's a bit of funding that comes with YC that probably helped jumpstart the, the company at the beginning. Um, but how was this experience of joining YC? So uh, one of the amazing things that has happened in the last couple of years is that YC has gotten really excited about climate. So they're investing more and more in climate tech companies, um, which is another great sign that the world is changing. Um, so, you know, for us, it was amazing to get to be part of this cohort of companies that are all kind of at the same stage, facing kind of similar problems, um, and especially around the other climate companies that were thinking about many of the same things as we were working with some of the same partners. Um, I think the biggest help from YC was just the advice they gave us on how to start a company, you know, like how to incorporate even some of the legal t stuff, just how to get things started and then how to raise initial funding. Um, so coming out of YC, we, we raised our initial seed round. Um, that was incredibly helpful advice. And it was also just extremely accelerative. Like it truly is an accelerator. They set very ambitious deadlines and you have to kind of go really fast. We built our first big prototype on a truck during YC. Um, so that was a really exciting and you know very intense time getting to that that deadline at the end of the program. So tell me more about that prototype because you're, you're in YC, you're three of, a, three of you guys and you have to build, you know, this this huge prototype. And are you buying a semi truck and you know just putting the <laughs> device out there? How does that work? We actually bought a smaller medium duty truck because a semi truck wouldn't fit in Eric's garage, um, and we were building the system in Eric's garage. So um, we decided it would be better to start with a smaller truck because you can kind of, if you have a half scale prototype, you can get a lot of the same stuff done without having to move around really heavy stuff. Um, so Christina and Eric worked out of Eric's garage um, and we, I worked on getting our initial customers lined up and um, you know, that was a huge push on both sides to get that, all of that lined up um, because at the end of the program, there's this demo day where you present in front of you know, thousands of investors and you want to really have something to show. So that was, we were pressing up until the very last day to get customers signed on and to get the prototype up and running. Okay, C can you walk us more through the tech actually? Like what does the product look like? So this is something you retrofit on an existing, I mean, semi truck ultimately, but at this stage, a, a medium haul truck. Um, you know, how does it look like? Uh, and more like specifically, how does the technology work here? It kind of looks like a big box on the back of a truck. So if you picture a semi truck, you've got the truck up front, the tractor, and then you've got a trailer on the back and the trailer hooks onto the tractor. And there's this little gap between the tractor and the trailer. And our system goes in that gap. So you retrofit it onto the truck and it's this kind of box, um, you know, with, you can see the adsorbent beds that are vertical and the pressure vessels, which hold the captured CO2, which are also vertical. So it looks like kind of a set of tubes that are all in this little uh, box. And 
the way that it works is we run the exhaust through an adsorbent bed which is basically this packed set of little beads and the beads have microscopic pores that capture the carbon dioxide molecules so the carbon dioxide molecules physically get stuck in the pores and the nitrogen and oxygen and other harmless gases are actually just the wrong size to get stuck in the pores so they flow right past the pores and out into the air so then once we've got this bed saturated with carbon dioxide we heat it up and when it's heated those pores open and the carbon dioxide come out so then we get this pure stream of carbon dioxide coming out of the adsorbent bed, which we can compress into the onboard tanks and store it until it gets offloaded. And I, I think the really cool part of this is while we're capturing, like we're, we're filling up a filter on one side, um, we're heating up the other one and regenerating it. And then we switch back and forth. So we're always capturing new carbon dioxide, even while we're like regenerating the other filter. And then we're using heat from the truck's exhaust to do that regeneration work, which means the whole system is very energy efficient. Okay, so this is happening in parallel. So you have, let me just reply that you have this filter essentially that captures the CO2 because CO2 is a big molecule. So the other one go through, CO2 gets stuck. But if you were just doing that, you would have to replace the filter frequently. But you have a heating system that enables the pores to open and, and that CO2 then gets, you know, uh, captured in some, some storage tank on board of the truck. And then you have parallel systems with one being activated and the other one being cleaned up basically, uh, until it is back online and they alternate one between the other. That's exactly right. Yep. You nailed it. And the other reason that we want to do this is it makes it easier for the driver of the truck. So when they fill up the device, so we fill it up with carbon dioxide, all they have to do is attach a hose to the side, device just pumps all that CO2 out into a big offload tank, and then they detach the hose. It takes 15 minutes, it's super fast, and they don't have to like take a whole filter off the truck and put a new one on or do some kind of heating. Like It's just very simple and we can handle the carbon dioxide just as a gas. When you explain this, Paul, it sounds so easy. I'm, I'm sure obviously from a technology perspective, it is not that easy. Um, but why hasn't this happened before? Is it because there was no demand from the market or is it the technology that wasn't ready here, there yet? It is a really good question. I think that it's kind of like a union of a couple things. Um, one is the technology wasn't there. Carbon capture has been around forever, but in academia there was this um, dismissal of mobile carbon capture people just said no way there are all these articles you can look online that say like this is impossible never try this it's a bad idea um, so christina really went against the green and to devote her phd to this and say like no i actually think this is possible that was an amazing move that she made um, so it was partly her work to say this is actually possible and that unlocked us pursuing it on the technology side she also proposed taking a slightly different approach. What I described is this solid porous adsorbent, so these little beads, but uh, there's another more common approach to carbon capture involving like a aqueous sorbent, so like a, a liquid. Um, and she proposed doing something different on a truck, which, which is a big unlock. Um, I think the other thing though is the, the market. It just, this exponential growth in climate commitments just in the last year or two, that's unlocked all this demand for a technology like this. Um, and all the companies working on CO2 utilization then provide a great end use for the cap capture of carbon dioxide. So it's all kind of coming together at the right moment. Right, because th that's obviously a cost, right, to install this and capture it. But if, And what has changed now is that companies and, and trucking companies are actually willing to bear a certain amount of, of cost, right, to capture that carbon. And how did you test that when you were at YC? Because, the, okay, you have the technology from your co-founder. It needs to be scaled up. This is what you're working in the garage on this medium whole truck. Um, how do you understand if your business model is actually valid in terms of assumptions and, and customers will actually pay and, and how much will they pay for this? Yeah, well, the approach is to sign letters of intent with, with companies. So I reached out to a, a bunch of big companies. I didn't have any network in the trucking industry before this. So I was just trying to kind of get introduced as much as possible. And um, we, we just told them about this solution and they were super excited. And 
we told them there was, you know, there, we were only able to work with a certain number of companies uh, because we don't have infinite bandwidth, and that we had to decide by demo day, which is this day at the end of Y Combinator. And the thing that was so stunning is that these companies like raced to get letters of intent signed with us. They were so excited because what we saw is there's just no other solution for decarbonizing semi-trucks. And that was the moment we knew that this is something that was really needed. It was a key piece of the decarbonization puzzle for heavy duty transport, which is a totally outsized segment of emissions. Um, so that was really exciting. It was basically just actually having the conversations with customers and getting them to sign so, uh, even just a non-binding document with pricing that helped us get a sense of the demand and, and you know how much this solution could help. Could you actually talk a bit about the other solutions you mentioned? You know, that one of the reasons they're so interested in Remora is that they don't have another decarbonization solution right now. We hear a lot about electric trucks. They're not available. We hear a lot about hydrogen trucks, uh, biofuels. Can you help us navigate a bit between those solutions and their associated timelines? Absolutely. So I'll just say my expertise on this comes from my co-founders. You know, Christina, as I mentioned, designed the EPA's advanced testing program for EVs. And then Eric built electric semi-trucks and buses before this. So we know the technology super well. Um, I would say for electric vehicles, the key challenge is that batteries are really big and heavy. It's really hard to put enough batteries on board a truck to haul 80,000 pounds hundreds of miles, which is like what a, a truck weighs, 40 tons. That's just really hard. And what, it, what that means is you end up adding something like 15 or 20,000 pounds of batteries to a truck just to get to 300 or 400 miles of range. And again, like a diesel truck has thousands of miles of range. Um, and that's a non-starter in the trucking industry. They're, entire payload capacity is maybe triple that or, or double that. So you're talking about taking away a third to half of their entire payload capacity, and that's how they get paid. So that, that's just, that's impossible for them. And this is even after lithium ion batteries have really come down the cost curve a lot and come down the energy density curve a lot. So we're talking about, we need multiple major scientific breakthroughs to get even close to batteries working for semi-trucks. It's the same reason that it's hard to electrify planes, for example, or cargo ships. Um, any long-haul heavy-duty transport, it's going to be really hard to electrify. This is an energy density challenge, right? The battery does not carry enough energy compared to the weight it has. So for you know a small car, you're adding 200, 300, 400 kilos on it. That, that's fine. For a large truck going long distance, being very heavy, you're adding significant amount of weight that will remove that from the, the payload and that's less money for the operator. Exactly. And the key thing to understand is that trucks in many parts of the world are weight limited by law. So anytime you add weight in one place, you take away weight. It's a zero sum game. Whereas cars, it's not the same. It doesn't really matter that much if you add weight to a car. Um, so that's the main challenge with electrifying semi-trucks. But then there are some other associated challenges. Like it takes forever to charge all those batteries. Um, and you need like, you know, and, and trucks are used constantly. They're not like cars where they sit around at night. They're, they have multiple shifts. So that really takes away from, you know, the operational uh, flexibility of these trucks. You need massive charging stations, totally different from cars. And you need these huge connects to the grid that in many cases don't exist. And then you also need the grid to be upgraded so that it's all renewables. The grid in the US is still 63% fossil fuels. So if you're charging one of those trucks, you're not even getting to carbon neutral. And then you also have to replace every truck on the road to even get, get the solution out. Um, that, so that I think is decades away at least. I think a lot of folks in the trucking industry think it's kind of never going to happen, um, but certainly not happening you know, anytime soon at any kind of scale. I do want to be clear though, electrification is an amazing solution for other segments like cars, also long last mile delivery, even some of the short haul trucking. Um, it's just not going to be a great solution for medium and long hauls. And what about hydrogen? Because we, we see many uh, you know, truck manufacturers getting into the segment of hydrogen because it has a higher energy density, less weight. Uh, and now, as you mentioned, the, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US will help bring down the cost of hydrogen. So is that something that might accelerate the, the development of hydrogen trucks? 
Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I, I think we need all the possible solutions here. The problem with hydrogen is that it doesn't decrease weight as much as you might think, unfortunately, because by the time you add the hydrogen tanks and the fuel cell, and then you've got the uh, battery and all the reinforcement equipment to make it safe to have a highly, highly flammable gas on board a truck, you actually end up adding a similar amount of weight to the weight of the batteries. Um, you know, Eric saw this when he was building hydrogen uh, semi-trucks, but it, it just, it ends up being really heavy. And that means, you know, you've got all the same issues that we were talking about with electric trucks. And then with hydrogen, we really do have to be clear about where hydrogen is. 99% of the world's hydrogen comes from steam methane reforming, which is incredibly carbon intensive. So we need to get green hydrogen out of pilot plants into mass production. We need to get it way down the cost curve. You know, currently it's like eight times as expensive as, as diesel, um, which I think the IRA will help with. Um, and then we need to get it distributed around the world. It's actually really hard to transport. We need to build out all new hydrogen refueling stations, and we need to replace every truck on the road with a hydrogen truck. And again, like I just, I'm worried that that's not going to happen, you know, in the next decade. I think it's going to be many decades, um, and that's in the U.S. Let alone other parts of the world where it's going to be even harder to build out that infrastructure or that, you know, green hydrogen capacity. You mentioned steam methane reforming. That's gray hydrogen. This is hydrogen from natural gas. So you're, you're basically still producing emissions from the natural gas by opposition to what you mentioned, which is clean hydrogen or green hydrogen, where you're actually producing that from renewables and then your, your carbon impact is lower. Exactly right. And actually, I want to just jump back to one other solution that you mentioned, because I think it's really exciting, which is biofuels or, or other kind of alternative fuels. Um, the key... I think most exciting thing here is that those fuels pair with our solution, so we don't have to choose. And if we pair a biofuel or another low carbon fuel with carbon capture, we can get the trucks to carbon negative, meaning that every time you drive the truck around, you're actually removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, and just to spell out how this works, right, a cartoon version is the plants grow, capture CO2 through photosynthesis, and then if you let them decompose, they release that CO2 back into the air. But if instead you take those plants and burn them for fuel and capture that carbon dioxide and sequester it, then you've got this whole pathway from the air into permanent sequestration using plants, using existing trucks, and using a retrofit technology. That is potentially one of the cheapest ways to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere because it's using all existing infrastructure. and that's really what we're doing kind of in disguise. We, we are building a carbon removal company that will use this pathway to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere every time someone ships something. So we're, we're able to actually drive emissions backward and not just stop diesel emissions from going into the air. This is so counterintuitive and so exciting. <laughs> Let me just replay that. So biofuels, they're, they're produced from biomass. The, the plant grows, capture the CO2 as it grows. And in the normal situation, it would just you know decay, as you say, and release that CO2 again and, and make another cycle. Um, if you're producing biofuel, you're, you're capturing that carbon into the biofuel until you combust it and you release that CO2 again. So you're neutral, but because you actually capture that carbon, you're not neutral anymore, you're negative. And that's what you're saying. So you're moving from a situation where you're producing carbon from uh, oil to a situation where you're actually negative as a trucking company. So I can see how this is a very strong value proposition for them. Totally, because they're, they have these net zero pro, uh, you know, plans and not every single you know, molecule of carbon dioxide that they emit is gonna be able to be reduced. So for, for them, having a negative segment of their business will help offset some of the other areas where they might be unable to decarbonize. Um, so it's really, really exciting for the trucking companies as well. Super exciting. Um, it, it sounds like everything is, is easy, right, for Remora? Were there any, <laughs> <laughs> any challenge there? Was it the, making that prototype work? Um, was it de-risking the, the market interest? Like, what's the biggest hardship you had at this point? This is a great question. You know, this is a really hard engineering problem. It, and so one of the things that we've just invested a lot of time in is building out an 
incredible world-class team of engineers with, you know, there are more PhDs than I can count. These are just brilliant people who are experts in every aspect of the heat management of our system, adsorption, regeneration, um, you know, you name it, like CO2 compression, CO2 um, transportation. It's a really hard problem. There are a lot of different moving parts. And that's been, you know, one of the biggest challenges for us so far is just getting this system to the capture efficiency that we want it to be at and to the weight, the volume, the energy draw. It's a really hard engineering problem. And, you know, it's also a very exciting engineering problem to work on. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, but that's been our main focus so far is just getting those first commercial units up on our customers' trucks. You know, we've done a lot of our own, as you mentioned, a lot of our own piloting. Um, we have our own semi-trucks now. We have a big facility and we've run our units around. We've built many, many units at this point uh, for various testing purposes. Um, and we're just about to get our first commercial unit on the road, which will be really exciting when we do. Um, so that's, I, I would say, the biggest challenge for us. The other big challenge is figuring out how to start manufacturing these repeatably. So once we have that design fully locked, we're gonna keep modifying it and, and keep iterating, but we also then wanna start saying, well, let's do a bunch of these because there's so much demand. Like we're sold out for this year and next year, um, and there are already folks talking about, like, can we get this in you know, 2024, 2025? Um, so we've just moved into a huge building in Detroit where we're gonna have our first assembly line. We're starting to build that out. Um, but that scaling up manufacturing, making a lot of something, that is its own huge challenge that we're just starting to tackle. And just before we talk about that scaling piece, uh, which I'm sure is really difficult, uh, can you help me understand what is the, the main um, parameters you're trying to optimize for? I imagine that the weight is one, the efficiency of the capture, because you're not capturing 100%. I imagine it's getting better, but uh, there is an efficiency to the filter. Um, yeah, so what are the big dimensions you're trying to, to work on and, and how far along are you on, on those? Yeah, the big, biggest dimension is weight. We already talked about how much trucking companies care about weight. Our system is you know, a fraction of the weight of uh, you know, batteries that you'd be adding to an electric truck. Um, but like every pound we can reduce matters a lot to our customers. So we care a lot about weight. We also have a volume constraint. We, we don't have infinite room in this in this envelope between the tractor and the trailer, so we have to make everything you know fairly small. And then we have an energy constraint. We have to use only the energy that's available to us on board the truck. We can't obviously use all the truck's energy because it has to drive as well. Um, so that's another big constraint. And then, as you say, the last is capture efficiency. How much of the CO2 can we capture in all kinds of edge cases? What if it's snowing on us? What if we're going over potholes? Like, what, you know, what if the exhaust is coming out at 800 degrees Celsius? There are a lot of uh, edge cases here, and the more that we can, you know, build a robust system that can handle all those situations, the closer we'll get to our goal of capturing 100% of the carbon dioxide that's coming out of the truck. So those are the main things that we're thinking about. I think the other really hard thing about this is that no one has done any kind of mobile carbon capture before in any serious way. So there are no components available for mobile carbon capture. You can't go out and buy a compressor that's the right size. So instead, we had to buy a compressor that was completely the wrong size, like five times too large. The manufacturer said there's no way that you can get it down to the weight that you need. Um, we ended up like taking off all their components, adding our own engine, adding our own controls, and proving that we could get it down to the weight we needed, and proving that we could add it on a truck and run it on a truck. Um, those are the kinds of things we had to do for almost every component. We're not using anything that's custom built for mobile carbon capture. Um, we're using things that are built for all kinds of other applications and kind of hacking them into a shape that they work for us, which is you know its own really fun challenge. Uh, but I would say, to answer the second part of your question, we are really far along. We are we are in the very final stages of you know testing and then deploying our first commercial unit. We've solved like I would say all of the major issues. Um, and we've we've got all the components up and running. It's really it's really exciting. Um, so that's where we are. But we still have obviously so much work to do. I mean, imagine it's an engineering 
Paradise and Nightmare to, to redesign all those components uh, from scratch. Um, you, you said you're almost ready for commercial implementation uh, with your first customers. Is, is the product standard for all the semi-trucks? You know, you mentioned that there's a, a space constraint. Uh, it takes the exhaust pipe. I imagine there are different types of semi-truck models. Um, is that standard? Does it work every, on every truck or is there a limitation to, to, that, uh, to that solution? It, it is standard. It works on any semi-truck. Um, the system is exactly the same, and that's the whole goal, is we want to make a modular, repeatable system. The main difference is the specifics of the mounting. You know, it's a little bit like buying like a roof rack uh, for your car. You know, it's going to be the same kind of holder, but you have to have a slightly different mounting system depending on the car, uh, because there are little shape differences. But it's amazing that we can do this, but it's possible to make a modular system that works uh, because the engines are relatively similar in these trucks. And I come from Europe originally. They have a bit of different trucks there. Um, is it conceptually the same system? There might be a bit of a change on the on the solution, but logically it's the same same system. It's the same diesel and the same uh, carbon dioxide molecules. Ultimately, I would say the you know, the way European trucks work is that there's less of a gap between the truck and the trailer. So the mounting system might need to be a little bit different. Perhaps it'll get built into the truck instead, um, but it's it's conceptually exactly the same. Okay. And that's what's so exciting about Remora, I find that you're able to retrofit the existing truck fleet at scale, potentially. And that we can churn these off of an assembly line. It's just, you know, th this, you know, we capture about 200 tons of carbon dioxide for the average truck, which maybe sounds, it's actually a massive amount, but maybe it sounds kind of small compared to a power plant. Uh, but then you just, you think, well, with 7,000 trucks, we're at a million tons. It, it really scales up quickly. Um, and it's very doable to not just make 7,000, but 50,000 or 100,000 of these um, and get really, really big, really quickly. Can you help me put in context the the trucking industry, you know, specifically in the U.S. that is that is so important, uh, you know, in terms of like share of emissions versus uh, other other sectors? For sure. Um, so transportation in the U.S. is the largest sector of emissions, and I think what's really staggering is you know there are hundreds of millions of cars on the road. There are only two million semi trucks, but they account for five percent of the entire U.S. carbon footprint. So that's about 350 million metric tons of carbon dioxide emitted every year, just in the U.S., just from semi-trucks. Um, so that's a crazy big opportunity. And then, you know, obviously our technology can be added to trucks in other countries, and it can be added to other vehicle types like locomotives or cargo ships. So this mobile carbon capture, I think, has the capacity to get us to several gigatons of carbon dioxide captured and maybe ultimately removed. So now you have your commercial pilots running. So this is this is super exciting. Um, I imagine you had you said you had a lot of interest from from different companies. Um, if you can share some name, that's great. If this is still confidential, absolutely understood. Um, my understanding was that the the trucking market is very fragmented. Um, how do you engage customers, and you know how do you choose with who you're working with? Because as you said, you're you're sold out. So I imagine you have to make some form of a of choice or prioritization here? We do. Um, so, and, and I want to be clear, our commercial pilots are are starting soon, uh, but haven't started yet. So far, all the piloting we're doing is internal on our own trucks. And in terms of the prioritization of our partners, um, it's been really tough. We, we're working, for example, with like four of the Fortune 10. Um, we're working with many Fortune 500 companies. Um, and those are just really exciting partners. So it's hard to say, hey, we can't work with you until um, you know next year or the year after, but that's the reality of the situation. Um, we're also working with some of the largest trucking companies in the country. And I can share, for instance, we're working with Ryder, um, which is, I think, the largest trucking company in the world, or one of them. Um, and you know, the way that we've done it is we've just looked at who is the most committed to this solution and who is the most committed to reducing carbon emissions? Because those are the partners we want. We, those are the partners we think deserve to get all the publicity that will come with being you know, one of the first to do this. Um, so we've just tried to understand their work on carbon emissions and, and their commitments and you know, how they imagine scaling this within their fleets. 
And that's the reason we've also started with by working with some of the largest fleets in the world. But we absolutely want this solution to work for not just the largest fleets, but the smaller fleets. As you mentioned, in the US, unbelievably, 92% of trucking companies have six or fewer trucks. So it is extremely fragmented. And really, like the reason we started the company is that this could be an amazing opportunity for these small trucking companies to generate extra revenue and to share in all the wealth that's going to be generated by the decarbonization transition and by all this money going into reducing emissions. And I think we can offer these trucking companies an opportunity to be at the forefront of this incredible change in our, our world and to make money on it that, to support businesses that are really struggling um, and to support folks in the US who you know, don't usually get to be part of these types of technological transformations. So that to me is, is like really an exciting piece of what we're doing here. So Paul, I think we need to go back to the business model you made uh, in Yale to explain to us how do you make money from carbon. Uh, my understanding is that you're capturing the carbon, you're storing or selling that carbon. Is there a revenue share model with the trucking company? Uh, how does the unit economics work for, for Remora and for the, the partner company? Yeah, so we sell them the device up front and then we share 50% of the revenue that we generate from the carbon dioxide back with the fleet. So they get this big chunk of revenue every year from their device. And usually within three or four years, they fully paid off the device and then they're just generating new revenue every year. And it's a really big chunk. And that revenue is coming from, you know, if it's a utilization case, they're paying us for the carbon dioxide. We can also sometimes sell carbon credits. Um, and then if we're sequestering it underground, we get this big credit from the US government for pumping it into, into these wells. That was a credit that was expanded by the Inflation Reduction Act. And then we also can sell a voluntary credit as well. So, you know, it's regardless, we're generating this amazing revenue stream from credits and from, you know, folks buying CO2. And we can help trucking companies share in that revenue and ultimately actually start making money on investing in this technology. And what's the order of magnitude of, um, you know, of revenue for a ton of CO2 capture? We hear a lot about the carbon credits, the, how this can be somewhere from $5 a ton to $600 a ton. Um, <laughs> how do you think about it for, for carbon capture from a, from a truck? Yeah, um, I, I actually I can't share specifics, but I would say that the revenue generated here is on the higher end of that spectrum. Um, we, this is an extremely high quality emissions reduction. It's obviously additional and it's obviously permanent. Um, and those are the key factors that credit buyers care about. Um, and it's also incredibly trackable and measurable. Like one of the really exciting things here is we have all these sensors on board the truck on the device that are in real time capturing data on how much CO2 we're capturing, um, how much CO2 we're sequestering. So we have this amazing transparency we can provide. Whereas if you're paying for another type of credit that's maybe you know going to um, someone developing a project that you're not able to see, then you don't have that same level of transparency. Um, so I, I would say for all those reasons, like we're able to generate very significant revenue for the CO2 that we're capturing. Okay. And are you seeing this cost go down throughout time? Again, without sharing a specific number, but is there a, either a market reason or technological reason to bring that down that cost? Or, or is that something that should stay at this level moving forward? We've seen it go up so far. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act is a perfect example um, of the 45Q credit, which is a, a tax credit for sequestering CO2 that just almost doubled in value for us. Um, yeah, I, I think we there's no reason to bring the the price down. I think that the price of, an, of, of a ton of CO2 reduced should be reflective of how much that's valued in our society. And that is being valued more and more every month. And as a result, we expect to see prices go up. Um, I don't think there's any reason to you know, artificially bring things down the cost curve. I think this is the whole reason that other people should be getting into decarbonization because it's going to be a really amazing economic opportunity as well as you know, a huge opportunity to help our planet. 
you talked earlier about the the manufacturing challenge so let's let's go back to that piece because this is a very important one in terms of how do you you scale from the commercial pilots you're about to start to you know like thousands and thousands of trucks um but what does it take to actually um scale that up i think you fundraised recently which was probably for for this manufacturing facility uh but how do you move you know from hundreds of devices to to i mean maybe not millions because you mentioned there's two million trucks but at least you know dozens and dozens of thousands of units yeah well you know the first step is finding really great suppliers who are willing to work with us to manufacture you know a large volume of their components and often help us manufacture custom custom components the compressor that i mentioned for example we have this amazing partner the compressor manufacturer who basically has decided to work with us to build as many of these custom compressors for our application as we want because they believe in this opportunity as well. And we've seen that across the board with all these major um, manufacturers who are willing to make whatever component they're making kind of as taking a bet on us. So I think that's one really big piece is building those scalable partnerships with fantastic manufacturers. We have a lot of great partnerships in the Detroit area, folks that have decades of experience building things for trucks. Then I think step two is figuring out a scalable process for putting together all of those different components. And that's why we just moved into this new big facility. We're building out our first assembly line. We're hiring team members who are going to be working on the assembly line and putting those things together. And we just hired a supply chain and manufacturing team led by an incredible person. Um, and their job is going to be figuring out how to do this as scalably as possible and laying the foundation now so that as the engineering team finalizes our design, we can then hand that off to folks that are just going to do that repeatedly. Um, but it's just going to be really hard. It's going to, we're going to face a lot of hiccups. We want to make sure we're putting things out into the world that are really high quality, so we don't want to rush anything. Um, and you know, we know from other examples of hardware scale-ups that this is this is a hard thing, and we're trying to learn as much as possible. But we know that it's not going to be perfect. And if I'm understanding the vision right, that you're saying, Paul, right now you're doing in-house because there's a learning curve to to building the new components. But the ultimate vision is that you can work with partners, you know, throughout the country or throughout the world, maybe even later they can actually manufacture those, those products for you. Yeah, I mean, when I say we're doing it in-house, I'm really saying we're doing assembly in-house right now. Um, all of our, you know, our frame, all of our components are built by other experts, um, not built within Remora. Um, and we have yet to decide how we want to grow, um, whether we will move more out of house, whether we'll move more in-house. But I think the you know, really important thing is we have great partners that we want to work with as we scale. Um, and, you know, I can't think of a better foundation for scale up than having all these experts that are willing to do a lot of units for us and willing to really invest in the work that we're doing. How many people are in the, the company so far? Uh, the team is about 45 people. Okay, so that was a really fast uh, growth journey because th that was over two years only from the Yale discussion and idea to a 45 people company with a manufacturing facility in Detroit. Um, yeah, how, how did you feel about that, that journey? Uh, I feel really excited. I, I think we have such a big opportunity here and there's so much demand that we can't afford to wait around or do things slowly. Um, we have to do it as quickly as possible. I mean, you know, one of the most inspiring things for me is just to see some of the best people decide to devote their careers to climate. I think that's one of the best leading indicators that climate tech is gonna be huge. Um, all of these smart people are coming out of school um, or quitting their amazing, well-paying jobs to go work on climate tech. And we've seen that at Remora. People just come out of the woodwork to apply to our our positions. We get tons of applications for every position. We have professors reaching out to us to ask how they can help. I mean, it's it's really like humbling to see um, just the level of excitement. And that's allowed us to build a very, very talented team very quickly uh, because we have access to such great people. And I think that's the reason that so many people want to join now is that it's kind of an amazing team to join. Like it's so many talented, brilliant engineers you get to be part of this group and get to be part of building something that's totally new um, that could have a really massive impact. 
Yeah, and you were mentioning earlier, you know, the the company commitments. I think this is also a trend that's pretty recent, like a few years old, that you're seeing these very talented people, you know, not go to, you know, to name them Facebook, Google, or Amazon, but actually work for climate tech. Um, yeah, I'd say climate tech is the new uh, the new Google uh, <laughs> since a few years. I agree. Thanks so much. And your enthusiasm, Paul, can be felt uh, when you when you talk about your product and this journey. Um, is there a resource you'd recommend, you know, a book, a podcast or anything um, either on transportation, decarbonization or, or carbon capture, something that if, you know, listeners want to deep dive into this topic, they could look into? I would say some of the best sources I found, there's a great Vox series on carbon capture um, that I would recommend checking out. I think Climate Tech VC, the newsletter, is always a great source of information about the industry more generally. They did a particularly great piece on carbon credits that if, if you haven't read, I would recommend checking out. Um, and then, you know, I, I would just say, try to go to the source as much as possible. Like that was my experience with this work. I think so often we just want to read articles or summaries. And I felt like when I was doing that, I was getting someone's opinion rather than actually understanding the science behind it or what was potentially possible that maybe people weren't seeing yet. So I would say like, go out and read dissertations, go out and read like scientific papers. That's where you're gonna see the coolest stuff and the stuff that maybe hasn't been reported on yet or, or hasn't been turned into a company, but might be like an amazing company or an amazing new idea. Um, so I, yeah, I would say do both and, um, and just, particularly talk to the scientists and the engineers because that's where it's most exciting and, and cutting edge. Very first principle approach, like your co-founder of people don't believe in it. I will, I will delve into it and prove that this is, this is actually possible to make it happen. Exactly. Uh, and a huge shout out to Climate Tech VC, honestly, which um, if you haven't followed this, they are doing extremely detailed piece of work um, on, on various sustainability topics. Uh, so it's ex excellent resource. Um, and I'll put the link on the, the Vox Carbon Capture series you just mentioned um, to, to look into this. Paul, thank you so much. Any, uh, any last parting thoughts um, on remorse, climate, or, or any topic we didn't touch upon? My, my last thought is just, I think if anyone's listening and thinking, should I get involved in climate tech? Should I not? You, you need to do it. it. It is the moment to do it. We're at the beginning of a massive wave of investment and excitement we're about to decarbonize the whole planet it's going to happen in the next couple decades and i just can't think of a more exciting thing to work on a more meaningful thing to work on so i just i always recommend everyone needs to get involved in some way um it, it truly it, i can't think of anything more exciting to be working on and i cannot think of a more enthusiastic end to this episode thank you so much paul for being here today thanks for having me Congratulations, you finished this episode. Thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you liked it, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. This is really helpful to be more visible in the rankings and to be able to keep inviting the best of climate tech entrepreneurs in this show. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you on our next episode very soon.